And this psalm this morning that we're going to be looking at, Psalm 127, is a great opportunity for us to pause and weigh what we hear through the lens of what God says is good and true and beautiful. And I'm just looking at all of you guys here. There's, this is a younger congregation. And here's the good news. You might not have gone through change the last two years. Well, you certainly will. Give life enough time and you will, right? So uh, my hope would be, my prayer would be that this morning uh, that Psalm 127 might be called to mind when that change does hit you in the future, that it might be an anchor and a lens through which you can view uh, your circumstances. So let's pray. And we'll jump on into Psalm 127. Yeah, Lord, we thank you that you are over everything. You hold everything in your hands, but you're not distant. You're not removed. You are also present in the midst of it. And so, Lord, for those of us this morning who have undergone uh, tremendous change in the last couple years, would you give us a deep sense of your, your presence, your comfort with us? Or for those of us who are, for those people here who are in the midst of change at the moment, would you give them a sense of your direction and your leading? Would you give them the faith that they need to follow where you may be taking them? And Lord, for those who may undergo change in the future, Lord, would you root these truths from your word deep into their hearts that it might come back to mind when they need it the most? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so at the beginning of all things, God created humanity and he gives humanity uh, different competencies, different uh, capabilities to reflect him to all of creation, right? We all have gifts and skills that we have as humans. Um, you have some that I don't. I have some that you don't. You all have different, different gifts from one another. But those are all good because God wants all of us to work. He wants us to use the, the skills, the gifts that he's given each of us to make something of this world. We are to be co-creators with him on this planet in the life and time that he has given us here uh, on earth. But here's the thing. Here's the thing with that. Every day of the week, you're working. You're striving, you're building, and you're guarding this life that you're trying to carve out in the time that you have. And every day of the week, actually for most of us, every hour of the week, you are inundated on social media and podcasts from influencers and commentators a message about what a good and meaningful life does and does not look like. Any of you guys know who the Island Boys are? Okay, there you go. Good. See, I'm 43, so I'm late to the game, but I just recently discovered who these guys were, and I can't look away because it's so bad. Then you guys who know who they are, uh, they are two brothers that have, they are the worst character of hip-hop you could, you could imagine uh, in a social media feed, endlessly. It's always, like, it's, they're, you know, f fully tatted up, you know, diamond grills, big cars, women, like, everything you could possibly imagine about the worst aspects of hip-hop, and it's in, it's, they put it on their feed every single day, and it's hard to look away because it's so bad. But they're giving their followers a vision of what they would say is a good and meaningful life. Fancy cars, big homes, things like that. It's not neutral. Any of you guys familiar with Jocko Willink? Fewer of you? I love Jocko. Jocko's a former Navy SEAL. He posts a picture of his watch every morning at 4.30 just to make sure everybody knows they have failed by three hours by the time you're out of bed. He's already been at work. Um, he is all about leadership um, and um, 
and, like discipline and things like that. All, I mean, I think it's really, really helpful. But he also is giving a picture of a good and meaningful life to his followers. He's also t- teaching what it looks like to lead well, be disciplined, work hard, things like that. Whether it is kind of superfluous, superficial, goofy, or, you know, former military, disciplined, hardworking, we are all receiving messages from all these different channels, different places, about what a good and meaningful life looks like. It's an author named Julie Canlis. She wrote a book called A Theology of the Ordinary. She says this, from Facebook to reality TV, we are in charge of the images that we project to others, and they better be good. No one wants to see somebody on reality TV minding his own business, taking naps when she needs to, commuting to a boring job that pays the bills and keeps children in school, loving his neighbor, helping manage the church's finances. What's she saying there? If we just posted the normal, boring parts of our days, no one would keep scrolling. But because people post the extraordinary parts of their days, we do keep scrolling. It becomes the message, the prevailing uh, picture of what a good and meaningful life looks like. And as we come together on Sunday mornings, where we honor and glorify God, remind ourselves of his story and our place in it, and even more so, what is absolutely and objectively true, good, and beautiful, without this hour of orientation, you might drift off thoughtlessly into prescriptions of what a meaningful and good life are that are unfortunately not medicine for you, but poison. And we start to believe, if we listen to those messages long enough, that a truly worthwhile life is an extraordinary life, a big life, one constantly marked by these mountaintop experiences. And we start to think that the ordinary parts of life are to be hidden, ignored, or most often just endured. And we start to assume that ordinary life is mediocre or worse, just not good at all. So in Psalm 127, most people are familiar with the two halves of the psalm separate from one another. But what we'll see is that God is giving us two ways to live in these two halves of this psalm together. There's two ways to live. Here's the roadmap for the rest of our time together. We're going to look at the anxiousness of being extraordinary without God, the blessing of being ordinary with God, and then the gospel from and for the ordinary. So the anxiousness of being extraordinary without God, the blessing of being ordinary with God, and the gospel from and for the ordinary. All right, so first, the anxiousness of being extraordinary without God. The first two verses in this psalm. The main point of this first half is that you're building, you're striving, you're guarding apart from God. Your desire to be extraordinary apart from him is vanity. It's vanity. Look at this language here. This, this phrase, unless, uh, this word unless pops up repeatedly through this first part of the psalm. Unless is a conditional if, right? If you do something, the outcome will be this. Or unless you do this action, the outcome will be not what you intend. So for example, unless you add eggs to a cake, it will fall apart. Unless you get regular oil changes, your car won't run. We had a friend who didn't get change the oil for three years. Like, can you imagine what their, happened to their car there? Unless you water the plants in your house, they will die. Unless God is involved, this psalm says, you're building, you're guarding, and your striving are in vain. Look at those verses. It's stark. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Unless God is involved, your building and your guarding and your striving are in vain. And this language of vain is a helpful one to, to cue in on. It means ultimately fruitless. It means something that you create or build or are working so hard for actually won't produce the outcomes that you would want for it to. It will ultimately be revealed to be hollow or empty. This is echoing uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, also another a book in the wisdom literature here in the middle of, this, of Scripture, where it talks about a man laboring his whole life but being unable to enjoy it because he has to pass it on to someone else. Unless God is involved, it's all vanity. And look at the outcomes of striving apart from God. Look at the end of verse 2. Do you guys see the outcomes? Eating the bread of what? Anxious toil. Anxious toil. The outcomes of striving apart from God are exhaustion and anxiety. Is this recipe of striving and guarding and building apart from God that leads to vanity and exhaustion and anxiety? Does that sound familiar to you guys? Does that sound like somebody you know? Does that sound like a place in which you live? Does that sound like a country in which we are a part of? This is a recipe that is not distant. This is a recipe that Scripture points out that's thousands of years old and proves itself true today. The outcomes of striving apart from God are exhaustion and anxiety. And I love seeing the unity of Scripture because in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about you can't serve both God and money. You guys are familiar with that teaching that Jesus says? Do you know what follows that teaching? Is his teaching on anxiety where he goes into saying, well, look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. You can't serve both God and money. If you serve money, you'll be anxious. So serve God and trust him like the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Anxiety, exhaustion are the outcome of loving money above God, striving, building apart from him. Scripture is clear about this. But if you're here and you might not give yourself fully into believing what Scripture might say, let me give you two other examples that reinforce this. An actor and a musician, Jim Carrey, said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see it's not the answer. The guy who's reached the pinnacle of everything that celebrity or Hollywood could, could give to a person, right? And yet he is saying, all of that building and all of that striving isn't the answer you're looking for. An old friend of mine, Dustin, actually, you just sang one of his songs. He has a song called It's Not Enough, where he says this, again, pulling the themes of Ecclesiastes into a song form. Though all the wealth of men was mine to squander, and towers of ivory rose beneath my feet, were palaces of pleasure mine to wander, the sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul would hold my name in honor, and truest love was always by my side, my praises sung by grateful sons and daughters, my soul would never still be satisfied. The building and the striving and the guarding, apart from God, leads to anxiety, vanity, exhaustion. It's never going to be enough, Scripture says, and these other sources say. A couple important caveats. Three, actually, three important caveats here. One, it's not, Psalm 127 is not saying not to build. It's not saying that. 
It's not saying not to work hard. It's saying don't do those things without God. You were made to work. Like I said at the very beginning of the sermon, God has given you capacities, skills, gifts that he wants you to use for the good of the world and to his glory. What this psalm is saying is use them for those ends. Use them not apart from God. Use them with God. If you're kind of wired like me, I'm very type A, very competitive. Even though I'm terrible at basketball and I see this slide about a three-on-three tournament, there's like, ah, should I play? I wonder, if I, I wonder if I could play. If you're like that, you might find yourself running into things without first asking, where is God in the midst of this? Kind of like that, that line from Jurassic Park where uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm says, like, your scientists were so busy thinking about whether they could do something, they think about whether they should do something. The psalm is kind of pressing on that. We're so busy, we so, we're so uh, eager to run in, to build, we don't go, wait, 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 am I doing this with God? Is he in the midst of this? First caveat, it's not saying not to build. Second caveat, it's not saying, and this is an important one, it's not saying that all anxiety is caused by striving apart from God. It's not saying that if you struggle with anxiety, that the necessary diagnosis is that you are striving apart from God. It's not what it's saying. However, it is inviting you, if you struggle with anxiety, to examine how much of it may be caused by striving apart from him. So it's not a blanket diagnosis or prescription, but it is an invitation to say, if I find myself just constantly, like, again, if you're a little bit like me, a little inside of my, I wake up at three in the morning and my brain just goes. Anyone else? I start running through all the lists. No, I see some head shakes that look sarcastic. I, you know, like, like you totally get what I'm talking about. My brain turns on and I start going through the task list of everything I have to get done. My brain turns on. I start thinking about all of the things that I'm worried about. And if that's you, there's an invitation here. of Like how much of that is you're striving apart from God? Third caveat here. It's also making a subtle point that doing something without God may look successful. A house is built in Psalm 127. A city is guarded. And there is going to be fruitful outcomes here, but it will, it will be anxious. What may look extraordinary in the world around you and around me is actually in vain. You may be the richest man in the world and have children willing to forego a fortune of an inheritance to have nothing to do with you. You may be one of the largest megachurch pastors in the world, and the celebrity culture you cultivated will be the church's undoing. In Jesus' words, what good is it to gain the world if you lose your soul? Psalm 127 gives us a framework by which we can weigh what the world calls extraordinary through the lens of what God calls good. Now all of that teaching there aside, I want, to, I want you to see this really tender invitation at the end of the first part of this psalm. There's a beautiful, tender, kind, gracious, loving invitation here. Because if the outcome of your building and your striving and your guarding apart from God, your desire to be extraordinary without him, your desire to build your own little tower of Babel apart from him is anxiety and vanity, what does God give? What does it say at the end of verse 2? Sleep. The God of the universe who made everything, the God who gave his son to pay for your sin, to rescue you from the power of sin, death, and the devil. He's not a cosmic CEO. He's not a taskmaster up in the sky who's just waiting to see if you pass or fail. 
He's a gracious, compassionate Father who wants to give you good things. His inclination towards you is like the Father in Luke 15 with the prodigal son and the, the religious older brother, the Father who goes out to them. That's what our God is like. And our God doesn't want to give you vanity and anxiety and worry. He wants to give you something infinitely better that we are all longing for. He wants to give you rest. Jesus himself said as much. He wants to give you peace. Eugene Peterson, a prolific pastor, prolific author, he's the one who wrote the message translation of the Bible. Um, He says this, Pliny the Elder once said that the Romans, when they couldn't make a building beautiful, just made it big. The practice continues to be popular. If we can't do it well, we make it larger. We add dollars to our income, rooms to our houses, activities to our schedules, appointments to our calendars, and the quality of life diminishes with each addition. On the other hand, every time that we retrieve a part of our life from the crowd and respond to God's call to us, we are that much more ourselves, more human. Every time we reject the habits of the crowd and practice the disciplines of faith, we become a little more alive. In turning from the desire to be extraordinary, in resting in our dependence and limitations on a God who gives rest, we are actually doing something fundamentally good in embracing the humanity that God has made us to live in. The building, the guardian, the striving sleeplessly without God is in vain. The second half of the psalm is about the blessing of being ordinary with God. So the first part is about being extraordinary apart from him. And the second part is about the blessing of being ordinary with him. God blesses with ordinary things like children. So the psalmist probably has a pretty good sense of humor, right? Because he goes from talking about God giving sleep to God giving children. I haven't seen that add up yet, <laughs> like in my life, right? We have three kids, 11, 10, and 7. And I think I, like, slept really well for the first time this year in about a decade. Like, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. But this is where the psalmist goes. God gives rest. And he gives these ordinary blessings of children. The thousands of changed diapers. The hours upon hours of breastfeeding. Sleepless nights peanut butter and jellies, bedtime stories, parent-teacher conferences, tantrums, first laughs and words. God blesses all of those ordinary little moments. Perhaps contrasting God's blessing in the ordinary through the blessing of children with our desire to be extraordinary in our building and guarding and striving explains two common views of children in our world, idols and obstacles. We tend to view kids like idols. And I love that Sam was saying we're going to have family worship. I love hearing little voices in church worship because those are little disciples that you as a church family get to make. They are a blessing. And by doing so, we get to counter the two primary views of kids, which are idols and obstacles. When we view children as idols, and that's generally kind of on the right side, the more conservative side of a social or political spectrum, We tend to build all of our lives around them. We tend to base our performance and our identity as parents on whether or not these children succeed or fail. Everything rises or falls on the kid. Everything is centered around them when they're our little idol. 
when we view them as obstacles, which is kind of generally on the left side of the political or social spectrum, we view them like hindrances to our career. I, I won't be able to achieve the job title I wanted or the salary level I wanted. Um, we view them as uh, obstacles to our experiences. I can't go on all the vacations that I want to go on. I can't do these things. I can't just go out with my friends whenever I want. We view them as obstacles to our experiences or freedom or money or status or power, or whatever else we're looking for. They're obstacles. Here's the deal. It's easy to talk about them as out there. They're in here. I, I, I catch myself with it all the time. They're little idols that like when they, parents, when they erupt in a tantrum in the grocery store and you are horrified and you are thinking more about how, what are they, what is, what is this store thinking about me more than how can I love my kid in this moment where they're struggling, that's a little idol. That's you going, this is more about me than them. And when they are hindrances to, for example, for me, uh, when bedtime takes forever and <laughs> I need to get back to some work that I need to catch up on, or I just want to rest and hang out with my wife. They're little obstacles to those things rather than blessings. We do these things. We, we, we live these distortions with our children. But the Bible, from Adam and Eve to Jesus in the gospel, reiterates that God blesses through the ordinary children. They're not idols. They're not obstacles. They're blessings from God our Father. Zach Eswine says this really helpfully. You want to do things famous and fast, but most things that truly matter need small acts of overlooked love over a long period of time. This is the truth we know deep down, and this is the truth that oftentimes children help us to see more clearly. The things that really matter, family helps us see this really clearly. We had a friend, uh, our old worship leader in our church, his younger sister was 21 years old. She bought Xanax on the street two weeks ago that was laced with fentanyl. Went to her funeral this week. And I didn't hear anybody talk about extraordinary moments with her. I heard everybody talk about the overlooked quiet moments that they'll miss. I heard them all talk about the little gifts that she shared with them of herself. The overlooked acts of love over a long period of time. These are the things that matter, these ordinary moments, these ordinary blessings that God gives. And this is something that we know deep down, that we, we live rushing past. We live our lives sprinting past these ordinary blessings that God gives. The things that truly matter need overlooked act of love over a long period of time, a life of blessed ordinariness with God. The psalmist says the ordinary dependence on God's blessing in weakness and limitation are like arrows in the hand of a warrior and will not bring shame. Some interesting pictures here in this psalm. Arrows in the hand of a warrior that will not bring shame. Think about pictures in the arrows of a hand of a warrior. Um, weapons that this warrior skillfully over years of discipline training learned to use. There's, there's a confidence in this. A fearlessness in the face of threat or uncertainty when you know how to, to use these weapons really well. Think about a picture of not being put to shame when facing your enemies. This, this language in Psalm 127 about the man uh, will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. That picture is at the gate is where used, they used to settle legal disputes. The elders of the town or the city would come and gather at the gate and they would hear disputes between parties and they would be settled there. 
So the picture is, if someone's bringing a lawsuit against you and you have tended to the ordinary parts of your life, they're not really going to find anything bad to say about you. Right? When, they, when they try to bring charges against you, if you have tended to those overlooked acts of love over a long period of time, there's not going to be dirt to throw in your face. They're going to have a hard time giving you, giving, bringing charges against you. You're going to be above reproach, as other parts of the scripture say. Um, any of you guys familiar with the, the show Mad Men? Right? Some of you guys. How about Friday Night Lights? Love Friday Night Lights. It's like one of my all-time favorite shows. One of the best marriages on TV and one of the best men on TV, but it also serves for this analogy perfectly, right? A friend of mine said, look, you have Don Draper from Mad Men, who is this ad executive who um, uh, you know, is a partner at this uh, lucrative, prestigious ad firm. He has all of the like titles and status. He's handsome. He's great at what he does. He, I mean, professionally, he's phenomenal. But if those of you who watch the show know internally, is he an honorable human being? This dude's a disaster. He's an absolute disaster of a human being. Friday Night Lights, however, is this coach, Taylor. He's coaching a tiny little football team in a tiny little town in nowhere, Texas. The trajectory of everybody in that show goes like this. No one's lives get better. Everyone's gets harder. And this man is just trying to hold it together for everybody that he loves through the challenges that they face that life throws at him. And my friend said, hey, look, honestly, if I was really honest with myself and I had to choose the life that I wanted, I would probably want to choose Don Draper's. But when, when, it comes to be, when it comes to choosing the man I would want to be, I'd want to be Coach Taylor, this small town, nobody football coach, who simply loves the people that he's among. That's kind of what the psalmist is getting at. If you live over here in this domain, when it comes time for people to bring charges against you, you're going to be in trouble. But when you tend over here to the ordinary parts of your life, there's an above reproachness to your character that is honorable, commendable. So your extraordinary resume, your extraordinary accomplishments are not your hope and refuge. Your extraordinary parenting, your extraordinary Christian life are not your hope and refuge. Your target, this psalm is reorienting you with, your target is not what the world calls extraordinary. Your target is dependence on God's blessing in the ordinary. Kind of riffing on something C.S. Lewis said, a formula he used. Aim for extraordinary and you might hit it. Some of you might hit extraordinary in this room if you aim at it. But if you do so, you'll miss the ordinary parts of your life. However, if you aim for the ordinary, you also may get the extraordinary thrown in, but you really won't need it. You won't be dependent on it. That's what this psalm is helping us to see. In closing, the gospel from and for the ordinary. Here's the deal. Jesus won your salvation in the ordinary moments of his life. We sang it a few minutes ago in one of the songs that we sang together. Christ won salvation for you in years and years of ordinary moments. At the beginning of the sermon, we talked about how this hour every week on Sunday morning reorients us to what is the most true and good and beautiful. At the center of existence, this, why this, more, this, this hour every, every week is so important because, again, we're, we're, we're turning down the noise. We are... We are we're removing the clutter. We are, we are peeling back the, the layers of distraction and messaging that we hear all week to get to the, like, the, the core, central, beautiful truths at the center of all of our existences. And at the center of what we believe is Christ, this unbelievable reality of Jesus. 
God sends this Jesus to a manger in a stable in a backwards part of Israel, born to a carpenter, raised in an absolutely ordinary family. Think about this. Someone asked Calvin, John Calvin, why couldn't Jesus have died as a baby for our sins? Why couldn't he have just died as a baby? Why did he have to live for 30 years? Calvin points out that in those 30 years of life, he was winning salvation for us. Yes, Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin in your place, but it was his perfect life. It was his perfect life, lived perfectly in the ordinary, that made his sacrifice able to cover your record. In the millions of quiet moments of his life, not documented in the Gospels, in fact, you could probably even look at it as like the spaces in the Gospels, the, 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 the breaks in the narrative. In those millions of quiet moments in Jesus' life, he was depending on his heavenly father as he cooked with his mother, did chores around the house, took naps, learned to trade with his father, fetched water, played with his friends, learned to read, played in the countryside as he bore with frustrating friends, endured grief and loss, faced accusations and betrayal, all in the ordinary parts of life, what was Christ doing? He was winning your salvation. And this is precious because every religion, every other belief system, from Islam to Buddhism to Catholicism to the secularism in our culture wars, all of it says that you need to earn it. Christ earned it in the ordinary moments of his life for you. In fact, it was Satan who tempted Jesus not to be dependent on God, to be independent and to be extraordinary by turning rocks into bread, having angels rescue him from a fall or obtaining all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus embraced the ordinary aspects of his life with his heavenly father for those who seek to be extraordinary without him. For you, for all of us in this room who want to be extraordinary without God, who want to build and strive and make ourselves awesome and commendable and to be esteemed, Christ was lowly and meek. For all of us who spurn the ordinary, who view children as obstacles and idols, who rush past the meaningful, overlooked acts of love in all of our life, Christ did not do that. He took every single one of those moments and won them for you. Loved perfectly, lived perfectly. The gospel is despite your failures to be good in the ordinary, your desires to be extraordinary without God, Jesus' record from his perfect life is given to you. His innocent death, his final act of obedience in your place is yours. His resurrection validates and makes the power of his work available to you now by trusting in him. Similar to God's gift of rest in the, baptism, in the, in the Psalms is the Holy Spirit's primary job to point you to your identity as beloved son or daughter of God. The Holy Spirit regenerates dead hearts like we sang a few minutes ago. The Holy Spirit gives faith. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit assures of salvation. And in that assurance of salvation, the Holy Spirit isn't just reminding you of a title or a position, though that's true. The Holy Spirit is reminding you of your belovedness of the Father. Julie Canlis says the Holy Spirit ushers us into adoption, not workaholism. He tells us not so much what to do, but who we are. Those of you who are Christians in this room this morning are beloved by God the Father. I had to face a really hard decision 18 months ago. 
could go one way or another. It was a fork in the road kind of moment. You guys had those before? No fun, right? My poor wife had to put up with hundreds of conversations. I'm like, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? But what if this happens? What if that, like, me just spinning on all the what ifs. Me weighing, like, well, what are the consequences if I make this decision or that decision? What are the possible opportunities of this decision or that decision? All of that. I called a friend in Seattle who's a pastor up there. And I said, Alex, what do I do? And he's like, well, are you choosing between something that's sinful and not sinful? And I was like, no, they're both fine. Okay, are you choosing between something that's foolish and not foolish? No, they both are fine if you stand them on their own. Okay. He said, look, Nick, I think God just wants to play with you. I think God loves you. And he wants to play with you on the playground. You You get to decide if it's the slide or the swings. Oh, my God, that was freeing. Because when you look at it like that, when you see yourself as an adopted, beloved son or daughter of God, it's not, in that moment, it's not right or wrong. It's not a pass or fail. It's a, let's go play over here together. You'll be with me, and it'll be okay. And here's the deal. The reality is the gospel has everything to do with your ordinary life. A mistake that many Christians make is to think that the gospel is some rudimentary aspect of the faith that believers grow past. That the gospel was something you said, yes, I believe this, check the box, prayed the prayer, we move on to the bigger and better things, right? No. Tim Keller calls the gospel not the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. Consider how ordinary these verses are behind me. The gospel has everything to do with your ordinary lives. In fact, These verses that are going to be behind me come from Ephesians and Romans. If you've ever read through those two letters uh, in the epistles, you'll remember that the first three chapters of Ephesians are all transcendent theology. They are all indicatives. They are all everything that's true about who God is, who Christ is, how he won your salvation. And chapters four through six are, now here's how you live in light of that. And Romans is similar. The first 11 chapters of Romans are all those indicative truths, beautiful, profound, existentially necessary truths that Paul unpacks. And then 12 through 16 are how do you live in light of that? The gospel isn't just the thing that gets you in. The gospel is the thing that applies to all of your life. Look at these verses, Romans 12. Hear the ordinariness of this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Later in Romans 12, be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of the ordinary people. Ephesians 4, stop telling lies. (laughs) Straightforward, ordinary, right? Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we're all parts of the same body. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Use your hands for good hard work. Ephesians 5, husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. This is the right thing to do. Ephesians 6, work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. The implications of the gospel are that it works itself out in your everyday life. The ordinary parts of your life are not just to be endured. 
They're not to be overlooked. They are the very places where the implications of the gospel bear themselves out in a way that impacts other people and glorifies God. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, I believe many of us have assumed that the ordinary life is mediocre. We start to believe that a truly worthwhile life is an extraordinary life, that the ordinary parts of life are to be hidden, ignored, or most commonly just endured. And what we see in Psalm 127 is that the pursuit of an extraordinary life without God only leads to vanity and exhaustion and anxiety. Instead, it's the ordinary parts of your life. Those are the, those are the, the places in your life that God wants to be with you, enjoying life with you, loving you, and working alongside you. And this place is the very place where Christ won your salvation and my salvation. So it deeply, deeply matters. Let's close in a prayer together. I invite um, the praise leader up to lead us in worship after this. It's a prayer that kind of come, uh, comes from a writer named uh, Arthur Brooks and a singer named Audrey Assad kind of pulled a few things together to give us language for expressing that. something I, I love about something I've loved about Harbor Network. Um, they have a really healthy. You guys might not be super familiar with um, how does your church interact with Harbor. Harbor is tremendously influential in emphasizing church health and pastoral health. And a lot of that is just being ordinary. Like being an ordinary pastor, it's okay to be an ordinary pastor of an ordinary church in Buena Park, California. That's great for, for your pastor. Harbor's wonderful emphasizing that. They're also wonderful emphasizing like a modern liturgy, which you guys have embraced. Like there's a call to worship, there's confession and assurance. There are truths that we say together that give us language that we wouldn't have in and of ourselves and that we can proclaim uh, collectively. So would you guys please stand as we pray this prayer after Psalm 127 together. You can read this aloud with me. Let's see. Yep. From putting my career before you. Wait, this didn't update. I'll read this here. Sorry. From putting my career before you, Lord, and the people in my life, from distracting myself from you, Lord, and from life with work, from the love of my own comfort, from the fear of having nothing, from a life of worldly passions. Deliver me, O oh God. From the fear of serving others, from the fear of death or trial, from the fear of humility. Deliver me, O oh God.